All right, well, open your Bibles, please, to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, we started this study of uh, these two epistles to the Thessalonians not long ago. And uh, this morning, I'll be reading um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, to the end of the chapter. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you not only in Macedonia and in Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Well, let me start out by saying where we are in this letter and why Paul's talking about what he is uh, talking about. Paul started this letter to the Thessalonians as he usually does with Thanksgiving. And so uh, usually he says who he is and who he's writing to and then says, well, here's what I'm Here's what I have a thankful heart to the Lord uh, about, and that's how he starts this letter too. He's thankful for the Thessalonians, he says, at the beginning of this letter, and for their salvation, for their salvation. And there's a reason that he's uh, thankful for it and telling him, telling them that he's thankful for for this. Uh, not only is it true that he's thankful for the salvation of the Thessalonians, but he wanted them to hear it. He wanted them to hear it. He wants them to, to know that he's thankful for their um, salvation. Uh, he's wanting to and needing to shore up in them their own assurance of salvation, which has begun to flag a little bit and falter. And so one way of doing that is for Paul to tell them uh, that he gives thanks because he knows that they're truly saved. And he's thankful for that. And they need to hear that in order for their assurance to be um, renewed. Well, Paul is, uh, Paul is, I would say, kind of an exuberant writer. That's kind of his um, style. He's like uh, Martin Luther, who understood Paul very well, I think, later. What he said about himself, he says, my thoughts flow and my pen gallops. And I think Paul was a little bit like that uh, as well. It's how God maybe made uh, them both. So Paul's uh, basically done with his report of thanksgiving, that he's thankful for the Thessalonians' salvation, but he's still sort of shoring up their assurance of salvation. And he's doing that in this passage, which we read, by piling up a number of vivid and memorable descriptions of their true conversion. And so that's what he's doing. That's that's the passage. Uh, he's describing their conversion in a number of ways. Uh, with some vivid descriptions that are going to stick in their memory and are going to remind them of their salvation. And mostly the way he describes it is in terms of the effects of their true uh, conversion. And so the message to them is, your salvation is real. And I saw it uh, from the beginning. And I remember it. And I'm reminding you uh, of that uh, salvation. And so his message to them, even in this part uh, of the letter, is to the Thessalonians, Listen, I'm not only telling you Jesus saves, which you believe, but I'm reminding you that Jesus is saving you. And you need to know that, that he saves you uh, as well. And so he's speaking uh, about uh, their assurance of salvation. Why is Paul doing that? 
Why is Paul doing that? Well, we talked last time, I'm trying to introduce these uh, epistles. So we talked last time about what I called the Thessalonian problem. The Thessalonian problem, and it's a, it's a specific problem to their church, and I can't think of another church that has exactly the same problem uh, that they had. Um, and yet it's important enough for there to be two letters in the New Testament recorded for you about this problem. So it's not such a, uh, not such an uncommon or unique, uh, problem. They were a wonderful church. They were a model church to others, as you'll see even in our passage. Uh, but every church has a problem, has at least one. And, uh, th- they did too. And the Thessalonian problem had to do with end times had to do with the second coming of Christ, which uh, the Thessalonian believers had a great interest in that doctrine about the future and about the coming of Christ, and rightly so. It's a huge part of uh, the Christian life, neglected to our hurt, what we expect about the future and about the second coming of uh, Christ. In fact, I think that uh, aspect of the Christian life is too much neglected. That's part of why I'm wanting to study these uh, epistles, is to shine a spotlight on uh, the end times teachings of Scripture, what Scripture teaches about the future and about the second coming of Christ. Uh, it's often neglected, and I think maybe in part because we're too worried about offending one another if we believe slightly different things about the order of events for um, uh, the second coming. And uh, Scripture doesn't spell out exactly the future. It doesn't do it at any point. It tells about the future. It prophesies about the future. But I think we should be reminded that even the Old Testament prophets puzzled and discussed among each other what their own writings meant about uh, the future. Peter talks about that uh, in one of his uh, epistles, and they puzzled out to find out what the Spirit was really meaning through that, and uh, we're the same way when Christians look at the future and uh, discuss, well, I think it means this. Well, no, I think it actually means uh, something slightly uh, different, and uh, that's how Scripture traces out the future, not uh, spelling out every detail, but leaving gaps open, uh, and uh, part of that is to engage our minds and uh, to cause us to think uh, about uh, those things. So the Thessalonians had a great interest in times, and that's good. That's a good thing. Uh, for them, and they were expecting Christ's uh, return, and that's a good thing too. But here's the problem. It's as if a worm was eating away at the inside of their waiting for Christ and causing it to be a husk and a caricature of what it really should be. And that is, instead of confident waiting for Christ's return... Where, uh, confident waiting, where what you're waiting for and expecting and the way that you're waiting for it fills you with energy for the present task. That's what it should be. Uh, instead of that, the Thessalonians began, what began to creep in is what I would call, and I was trying to figure out the right word for this, a nervous waiting. A nervous waiting. Maybe even bordering on dread of, uh, uh, the future in their thinking of, uh, of Christ coming and is he, when he comes, will it mean salvation for me, uh, in some way? Or, or am I not going to be saved when, uh, he comes? And so they're waiting instead of a bold, confident waiting that filled them with energy for the task, uh, at hand was a waiting that instead caused them to be paralyzed 
and uncaring about the responsibilities of this present age, which they began to neglect. And so their waiting for Christ began to have the opposite effect on them uh, as it really should have because it lacked that element, which should really invigorate the waiting for Christ and then uh, invigorate our service for Christ in the present age. And that is assurance, waiting confidently, boldly, knowing that uh, Christ's coming means salvation uh, for us. This uh, problem that I'm describing is more pronounced in 2 Thessalonians than it is in 1 Thessalonians, um, which means I think that the problem got worse before it got better. And that's that's true of a lot of things, I think, in the Christian life. Um, there's problems that come up, and uh, they're addressed uh, in Scripture to us. And uh, a lot of times in our experience, they get worse before they begin uh, to get better. But that uh, problem is there, I think, in both letters, a little a little um, harder to discern in the first epistle than it is in the second. But I think it's a, it's really a key, that key of assurance is key to understanding uh, both letters, including First uh, uh, Thessalonians. So how did Paul go about addressing the Thessalonian problem in these letters? Well, he does it in a couple of ways. One is they were a little mixed up on the order of coming events. And Paul corrects them on that. And we're not there yet. We're not there yet uh, for that. I look forward to getting there with you and, and diving into those things and trying to trying to grapple with what Scripture says about the order of events that should be uh, expected. But secondly, and maybe more important uh, than that, and something that Paul addresses more often than that, is he's always chipping away at this problem of their lack of assurance, their lack of uh, assurance. In other words, he's saying to them, you're waiting for Christ's return, but with the wrong attitude. You're waiting with the attitude of apprehension about your own salvation, and you need to be waiting for Christ's return with confidence about your own salvation. You need to know that Jesus saves you, and you need to know that as well. In fact, you can't hear that too often uh, with relation to the second coming and also with relation to our present um, serving and the, and the way in which we're to uh, engage the responsibilities of the present time as well. So this morning, we're going to look at um, three effects of true conversion that are really intended by Paul to shore up assurance of salvation to, so that they'll be waiting confidently for Christ's return. So three effects of true conversion, which Paul, of their true conversion, which Paul describes, and one flows right into the next as Paul describes them. So first we're going to look at what the Thessalonians became when they were saved. They became imitators and they became examples. That's in verse six and seven. Second, we'll look at the impact that their salvation had on others. That's verse eight. And third, we'll look at what others are saying about them. And that's in verses nine through ten, and so those uh, flow right into the right into the next one. But first, let's look at what the Thessalonians became uh, when they were saved, and that's in verse six and seven. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation, with the joy of uh, the Holy Spirit. Paul's just been describing what he's thankful for. Uh, he's thankful for the Thessalonians and uh, for their salvation. He's thankful that uh, the gospel, when it came, didn't come in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit. And in full conviction, 
and he's described what he's thankful for, and he says, and also, he's talking about the same thing, their uh, salvation. Also, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And so he speaks of a dramatic change that came over them, where they became something they weren't before. They became imitators of uh, Paul and his uh, co-workers and also of the Lord. Now, as Paul puts it in that way, you became imitators of us and the Lord. Um, that might be kind of a startling thing to say. He puts himself even before the Lord. You know, you became imitators of us and also of uh, the Lord. Uh, that's a good thing, uh, though, for them to learn to be imitators of the Lord first through being imitators of his servants. And that's often how we learn uh, to be imitators of uh, the Lord. You might consider that to be artificial, to be uh, mimicking someone else. Uh, but we serve as examples to each other. We're an encouragement to each other. That's why we're put in the body of Christ uh, together. We had a memorial for Denny, and it's a, it's a profitable thing to remember uh, things about Denny's life that are an example to uh, us. And if the Holy Spirit lives uh, in each one of us, there should be something amazing about each one of us that is an example to others. And it's probably different for different people. For some, it may be kindness, maybe courage, maybe wisdom uh, for some. But if you look hard enough in someone who uh, has the Holy Spirit, you'll find it. And when you do, you would do well to imitate what you find. And in so doing, you'll find yourself to be imitating uh, the Lord Jesus uh, himself. And so this is what began to happen to the Thessalonians because they were truly saved. And so it's expressed in a change and it's expressed in them becoming imitators of Paul and Silas and Timothy, who were the only Christians they knew really, or, or only Christians uh, who had been that way for a, a long time uh, uh, before this. And so they became imitators of us and through uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy's example, also of the Lord. This shows that um, leadership in the church requires integrity if if leaders in the church are examples. Uh, and so uh, this is the way in which uh, Paul led. He says this uh, in other places like to the Corinthians, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. And so basic integrity is required of leaders. It means every part of your life touches every other part of your life and you're a whole uh, you are what you uh, what you seem to be, and so this is required of leaders, especially because they have uh, this uh, uh, task of being an example to uh, those uh, that they are uh, leading in uh, the church. So he says, "You became imitators of us and of the Lord after receiving the word in much tribulation." with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And he's just continuing to describe this change. This change of them becoming imitators came about when they received the word of the Lord. And the word is what makes the difference, receiving the word of the Lord. But even the way in which they received it, Paul remembers it. He remembers it as part of their uh, uh, true conversion, that they received the word, they accepted it for what it really was, the word of the Lord, in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, the, the uh, Thessalonians from the beginning received the word in a place of pressure. Uh, as soon as they accepted the gospel, they began to be persecuted. And remember, we, we even did a, a message from Acts that talks about uh, Paul's time in uh, 
Thessalonia, Thessalonica, and uh, the uh, uh, it ended with mob violence, uh, which erupted, and the Christians bore the brunt uh, of it there. And then it was so intense that it spilled over into other places like uh, Berea, and then uh, the same people lived side by side of them. And so uh, to be a Christian in this city was to live with tension, at least uh, tension when it wasn't overt and was uh, being uh, ex- expressed in uh, something violent. And so they're always uh, under this pressure. He calls it much tribulation, much pressure. But what the Thessalonians found when they were saved is that outward pressure resulted for them in inward joy, inward joy, much joy of the Holy Spirit. In fact, only the Holy Spirit can cause that. When pressure comes outwardly, causes joy inwardly. And so this, again, is a, is a really a proof of their um, salvation as well. They became like the apostles, rejoicing they're considered worthy to suffer for the name of uh, Christ. And so um, pressure, tribulation, persecution, uh, tension didn't break their spirit or embitter them, or divide them, or cool their love uh, for one another. But uh, they received the word in much tribulation, and they found, well, I, I have the joy. I have the joy of the Lord. I have the joy of the Holy Spirit. I have something I've never had before. I've never experienced anything like this before, because uh, uh, normally uh, pressure should put a damper on your joy. But for a Christian, uh, it uh, increases the joy of the Holy Spirit. It's just part of a description of... Uh, a true conversion. Paul's reminding the Thessalonians of their uh, uh, conversion um, because they've uh, they've lost some of the assurance that they perhaps started uh, uh, with. Uh, but it shows how important joy is. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not an extra of the Christian life. After you have all your ducks in order and uh, everything's aligned and calmed down, and okay, well now I can have joy of uh, the Holy Spirit. No, it's essential. The joy of the Holy Spirit. We should be praying like David that the Lord restore to us the joy of our uh, salvation because it's something that gets gets you through. And it did uh, for the Thessalonians and did right away as they received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And that joy carried them uh, carried them through. One commentator says this combination of affliction and spiritual joy is the token of election. It's a token of true salvation. And so um, uh, this is uh, something that Paul is reminding them. He's, he's trying to uh, encourage them. And uh, so they in, they received the word, accepted it in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit at the beginning, when Paul was there, when Paul was uh, uh, watching them and uh, noting all this that he's reminding of them. And since then, it's bogged down a bit. They've gotten a little bit more discouraged a lack of assurance or a doubt about their own salvation has uh, set in. It's been eating away a little bit at their joy. And so uh, Paul reminds them, he says, I remember, I was there. I remember how you received uh, the word and began to become imitators of us, received the word uh, in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. And so notice how this works. Uh, the imitators, who are just, just learning at the beginning, don't even know what it is to be a Christian, soon become, and this happened very quickly for the Thessalonians, they soon become examples. 
to other uh, uh, believers, and you can see how this works of uh, 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 discipleship and the disciples making other disciples and uh, becoming an example to them. And so Paul says, this is what uh, happened to you. You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. They became examples not just to pagans who didn't know the power of God, but they became examples to Christians who he calls here just simply believers. Believers. You became an example to all believers in Macedonia and also in Achaia. Macedonia is the region of northern Greece where they were, and uh, Achaia is the region of southern Greece where Paul is writing uh, this, uh, this letter. So Paul's telling the Thessalonians something that the Holy Spirit's also telling you this morning to look back, look back at your own salvation. Look back at how you received the word of the Lord and you received it as a joy of the Lord, even amidst uh, 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 difficulty and uh, 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 oppression. Uh, and, and to look back and to be uh, bold enough uh, to say, I know the Lord saved me. I, I know because I remember at, uh, uh, at the beginning of my uh, salvation. So three effects of a true conversion, uh, and he's uh, reminding them of their uh, true conversion to instill in them assurance. Again, he speaks about what they became. They became imitators. They became examples, and then flowing right out of that being an example to others, he uh, begins to describe the impact that they had on others, and that's in verse 8. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and in Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we do not need to say anything. Paul uh, wrote about the word sounding forth from them, not only in Macedonia and in Achaia, but also in other places. He mentions these um, Roman provinces, Macedonia and Achaia, and uh, I think that gives a little bit of a window in how, into how Paul thought thought in terms of these regions. He thought in terms of these areas. He thought in terms of the gospel starting to become established in main cities, which is where he ministered, and then reaching out from there uh, into all the parts of the provinces. And that's how he thought, at least at this stage, as the gospel is beginning to go to new places through his uh, ministry. And so he says, the word of the Lord, this is the effect you've had on others, and I'm reminding you of this, to encourage you, he says, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia, your own province, and Achaia, but also in every place that your faith toward God has uh, gone forth. And uh, so uh, Paul, uh, you might ask, how did Paul know that their faith had gone to all these places where he's hearing of it? And I think Paul was also perhaps uh, traveling um, at this time, Paul was in Corinth on his second missionary journey, which is the, the, the time when he stopped for a, a long period of time. He spent a year and a half there. The Lord told him to stay in that city. And I think he made some forays into other places um, as well. He, Paul talks about um, the gospel going as far west as Illyricum in his ministry. And I think it's probably at this time. Uh, so he's going not only to Macedonia and Achaia, but also even to Illyricum, that's the Balkan region uh, today. And uh, as he goes to these places, they have already heard about the Thessalonians. 
already heard about their faith. And what they're hearing, uh, what they're drawing from uh, the, what they've heard about the Thessalonians is not uh, that there's some new philosophy or not even that the Thessalonians are such great people, but the word of God is sounding forth from what they've heard about Thessalonians, the actual message that the Thessalonians believe, which is the gospel itself. So the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you because of your conversion, because of your reputation uh, with others, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith toward God has gone forth, even beyond that, so that we have no need to say anything. So <laughs> Paul goes to a new place uh, that he hasn't been before to give uh, the gospel and uh, people already know what he's going to tell them because he's heard about they've heard about the Thessalonians. He's heard about they've heard about uh, what happened when the gospel came uh, to Thessalonica. And uh, so that Paul brought up short, he just doesn't have to say anything or, or they already know what he's uh, intending that uh, he thought he was going to have to explain to them for uh, the first time. And so Paul's seeking to uh, encourage them here with. Uh, the effect that they had uh, upon uh, others. So three effects of their true conversion. It's meant to shore up their assurance of salvation, and uh, one is flowing into the, the other. Uh, Paul first talks about what they became. They became imitators and examples. He talks about the impact that they had uh, on others as the gospel sounded forth in every place uh, to others. And then Finally, he says what others are saying about them. And so uh, this is what he hears uh, from other people about the Thessalonians. And he, he wants them to hear it now, too, as well. Verse 9. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Paul has a really odd way of expressing himself here, uh, and maybe even an awkward way of uh, putting putting this, and I, I think he does this maybe awkwardly so it'll stick in uh, their mind, but he says, they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and uh, so uh, when Paul uh, speaks to people that he meets uh, in other places, he says they're telling him, let me tell you what you did in Thessalonica and what kind of reception you had among uh, the Thessalonians. And so this is uh, Paul's way of um, presenting to them for the last time, describing to them their own conversion. And he puts it in the mouths of others that he's hearing uh, in order to encourage uh, uh, the Thessalonians. And uh, this is the final way in which he describes their true conversion. And, and maybe this is the point at which he was uh, headed for all along when he headed down this road of describing their conversion in uh, several different ways. So he's reminding them uh of their conversion and especially of the way in which they waited for Christ's return at uh, the beginning of, uh, of their um, salvation. Uh, and so he says um, how you, they themselves report to us about what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait 
for his son, Jesus Christ, from uh, heaven. Um, one thing you'll notice about the way in which he describes their salvation is that he describes basically pagans being saved without any um, intermediate uh, turning to Judaism before they turn to Christianity. And so uh, for the majority of the church in, in uh, Thessalon- uh, Thessalonica, uh, they were saved straight out of paganism and turned from worshiping idols, a, plur- uh, a number of different idols, to, to uh, serving the one true God when they heard uh, the gospel. It's a little bit of a different impression than you get when you read the account in Acts. And that's because the account in Acts focuses on the first three weeks where Paul was ministering in the synagogue to people who uh, either were Jews themselves or were Gentiles who were already interested in Judaism and worshiping in uh, the synagogue uh, already. It focuses in on that time, and then it focuses in on the end of his time in uh, Thessalonica, which was a mob coming and uh, pushing them uh, pushing them out. Uh, but uh, Paul actually spent, for those who uh, try to add up these things, probably about four to six months in Thessalonica, and during that time, most of the people saved in uh, this church were not like Jason, who was a Jewish man in the synagogue and already, or still a leader uh, in the church, or not like the Gentile God-fearers who were part of the synagogue and became uh, 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 Christians, but were total pagans who uh, worshipped idols, worshipped the pagan gods, and uh, heard the gospel and turned from worshipping idols to serve the living and true God. So these were pagans who worshipped Zeus and Hermes and Athena and Apollo, or maybe according to their more Roman uh, names. And uh, if you study or read about these gods, there's nobody who worships gods like that today. And often they sound kind of so ridiculous uh, to us that we don't take them very seriously. And we don't think the people back then took them very seriously either. Uh, but they did. They did. People uh, worship by nature. We're really created to worship. Atheists are, or those who claim to be atheists are usually few and far between. And this was what was available for them to worship. This was the biggest thing uh, that was promoted by by the cities and uh, by the those in power as well. And the people took it seriously. They took it seriously and they prayed uh, to these uh, gods and uh, considered them uh, to be powerful. And so this change that Paul describes about when he's describing their uh, conversion was quite a change. It was quite a contrast when they turned. This was quite a turning. They turned uh, from serving, uh, they turned from idols. Uh, It's reported what kind of reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. So it's a turning from the idols to do two things, and they're both important, to serve and to wait, to serve and to wait. And those two things go uh, together. Serving is oriented to what we're doing in the present. Waiting is what we're doing uh, in, uh, with reference to the future, of course. And there's a certain kind of serving that goes along with a certain kind of waiting, there's a wholehearted kind of serving in uh, the present, a fully engaged kind of serving that goes on in uh, the present that goes along with a certain kind of waiting, and that is a confident waiting, 
awaiting, knowing that there's wrath coming, but that that wrath coming is not for me. However it works out, it's not for me because I'm saved. And uh, this is this is what happened when they were first uh, saved. They turned to serving in the present, wholeheartedly serving the living and true God and waiting for his son from heaven, but confidently. Waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath uh, to come. And that was clear in their minds um, when they were first uh, saved to the point that even people far away who've heard about him can describe it and and tell Paul about it uh, because that's the way in which he uh, presents this truth uh, to them is in uh, the mouth of uh, others. So they they knew that they were waiting for God's son who's risen from the dead. Risen from the dead because he was crucified to pay the penalty for sin and it's all been paid. And God has raised him from the dead because he's pleased with his sacrifice. And so the one that we're waiting for is Jesus who rescues us from uh, the coming wrath. When these uh, Christians were pagans, which was not long before this, they worshipped idols, and in their false worship of these idols, they always had a sense of wrath. They always had a sense that something's wrong. That's built into uh, the the, uh, human heart, and man in his rebellion can't always uh, get away from that. And so as they worshipped, these uh, pagan idols, these pagan uh, gods, they always had a sense, well, maybe maybe I, I haven't done everything quite right. Maybe one of these gods is mad at me. Maybe he's uh, angry with me. And especially the way these gods were uh, depicted as being capricious, fickle. Maybe they'd have a favorite uh, among men and then maybe forget about them or get a new favorite and show favor to that one at the expense of the one that was a favorite uh, before. And so as a pagan, you were under a little bit of a sense of that wrath. You could find a few levers to try to earn the favor of the gods, keep your vows that you made in the name of a god, uh, maybe be kind to strangers. Some of these gods were kind of like the patron saints of uh, strangers. Uh, so you could try to keep on good terms with them by doing that. Make the right offering to the right god at the right time in the right way, but there was always kind of a nagging sense for them. Well, maybe I've forgotten one of the gods. Maybe I messed up when I was trying to make just the right offering in, uh, in the right, uh, in the, in the right way. Well, what Paul taught about the wrath of God, and he taught this to pagans. It was part of the way in which he presented the gospel is actually your condition with the one true God is far worse because there's coming wrath. There's wrath being stored up. And uh, this wrath is not like the wrath that the gods supposedly have, the pagan gods supposedly have against man, where they'll remember something and their anger will flare up and then they'll forget about it uh, a little bit later. This is a settled, just wrath that's being stored up exactly. And God never forgets anything uh, that is done against uh, his justice. And it's about to burst forth on the earth and uh, justly, uh, burst forth on uh, the earth. And what these uh, believers were convinced of when they turned from idols to serve the living and true God is that the wrath that they deserved was far greater than they had ever imagined. And yet, when it came, there would be none for them. And so they uh, uh, turned to serve 
the one true God and to wait for his son from heaven who's coming with wrath, but none for them. He's Jesus risen from the dead who rescues us uh, from the wrath to uh, from the wrath to come. Why does Paul press that point home here that there's no wrath for sinners? Uh, when I mean, no wrath for believers is what I meant to say when uh, when Christ returns and that the Thessalonians themselves were were fully convinced of that uh, when they were uh, converted uh, to Christianity why does he emphasize that truth there's no wrath for you Jesus is one who rescues you from the wrath to come well many reasons the glory of God himself is at stake in this he rescues his children from the wrath uh, to come the truth is at stake there is no wrath. For believers, it's all been uh, uh, paid for by Christ. But another reason Paul uh, emphasizes this is because a certain kind of service is at stake here, of a kind that they never knew before when they were worshipers of idols. And it's a service where you're not afraid of wrath, not afraid of wrath at all because of Christ. And so your service is offered gladly. It's offered in the freedom of knowing that there's no wrath coming for you. And it turns out that that kind of service is the only kind of service that God accepts as being delightful in his sight, as being an offering that's pleasing to uh, his sight. And so Paul's reminding of them of this, the way they used to be waiting, the way they were waiting when they were first uh, saved, to call them back to this uh, kind of uh, service. When you turned to God from idols to serve, a living and true God waiting for a son to come without wrath for you when wrath comes uh, upon uh, the earth. And so he's calling them back to uh, this way of waiting. He's calling them back to this way of serving uh, as well. And serving God, serving the one true living God who's revealed uh, in Christ usually means serving others, like the verse that David read uh, this morning about uh, having the same attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus uh, also to uh, seek the seek the needs of others and uh, not your own. Since God has no needs like the idols, but others do uh, around you. And so if it is well with your soul, because your soul is resting in Christ then you're going to serve Christ. You're going to serve God by your spirit going out to others in the present uh, time. Maybe going out to them in actions, maybe going out to them just in prayer, but it's going to go out to them uh, in this kind of very free service to uh, the Lord. The, the serving, the kind of serving the one true God that goes along with waiting for his son from heaven who rescues us from all of the wrath to uh, to come. So Paul says to the Thessalonians, this is how you used to be expecting Christ to come. And I remember it. And others noticed it about you. In fact, others tell me uh, about this when they tell me uh, about you. And this is the confidence that you need to recover again. You need to go back to the kind of expectation of Christ uh, that you had uh, before, uh, that you might go back to this kind of service of Christ that you had before when you first turned uh, uh, to God. One uh, commentator laments that the church has lost its expectant waiting for the return of Christ, much to the impoverishment of the church. And he says, that attitude of expectation, the bloom, as it were, of the Christian character, uh, 
is, is the bloom of the Christian character. And without it, there's something lacking. The Christian who does not look upward and onward wants one mark of perfection. And so this uh, understanding that Christ is coming again, and when he comes again, there's going to be no wrath. When he comes again, even with wrath outpoured on the earth, there's going to be no wrath uh, for his people is a key component of the Christian life. And so we're reminded of this in this epistle to uh, the Thessalonians. So what are we to believe about the future? Well, maybe you are uh, pre-trib in your view or post-trib uh, or amill or post-mill or pre-mill. Um, and uh, all those are different labels for Christians organizing their thoughts about what is the, what's the exact order of events that's coming, uh, for the end uh, times and surrounding Christ's returns. You might ask, well, which one of those are you? Which do you believe in, uh, of those? Which order of events do you interpret, uh, scriptures, uh, as, uh, as presenting when it's all put together? Do you think you're going to live through the, the final tribulation or do you think you're going to be taken? Uh, before it comes. And uh, I look forward to even diving into all that and sorting out uh, the order of events with you or, or what my understanding of what Scripture says uh, from everything that's presented in these Thessalonian uh, epistles. And uh, when we do that, maybe we'll circle back to this verse and, and look at what it says and apply it to the exact order of uh, events uh, that's presented in these epistles. But I sort of doubt it. Because I think what Paul's really getting at here is not uh, to shed light on the exact order of events, but he's getting at something more basic. And that is, what are you expecting when the dam breaks and God's wrath is shown on the earth, however it's shown, in whatever order of events uh, that it's shown? Do you know with certainty that when that day comes, God is not angry with you at all? And he's not angry with you at all not because of your deserving, but because of Christ. Because Christ is risen from the dead and he's one who rescues you from the wrath to come. If so, if that kind of certainty characterizes your expectation for the future, then let it free you to serve a living and true God in the present now with energy, with abandon, with, uh, I might say, even a holy ambition, with joy and with hope in the present time. Let's pray. Dear Father, we pray that you would give us uh, expectation of you, not just of the right order of events, but with the right attitude, an attitude of assurance towards the future, knowing that uh, this world has uh, uh, something hanging over its head, something more serious than we could imagine, which is uh, the outpouring of your justly deserved wrath against sin and uh, rebellion against you, and that it is right at the door. It's about to come. And yet, Father, teach us to rest that because of Christ, because of Christ alone, there's none for us, even though we uh, deserve it for the deeds that we've done. And so what we're waiting for when we wait for Christ is simply himself with no wrath, and uh, his coming will mean a salvation uh, for us. And so, Father, uh, with this confidence, teach us to serve you uh, boldly, confidently, uh, and serve a, a living and, and true uh, God, not with a sense of dread or a sense of uncertainty about our standing uh, before you, but to serve you boldly and confidently 
and engage uh, the responsibilities of the present time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.